and all of a sudden he'd let himself be swept up into a duel with this multi-millionaire into a gamble for literally all Bond possessed, for the simple reason that the man had got filthy manners and he wanted to teach him a lesson. And supposing the lesson didn't come off, Bond cursed himself for an impulse that earlier in the day would have seemed unthinkable. Champagne and Benzedrine? Never again. This is Genre. We're reading genre classics and pulp gold, and we watch the occasional blockbuster too. We try to keep all of our references to books and authors that we've previously read together for this podcast so we can draw connections between different genres. Can we create a web of connections between different books, different time periods, different genres? I don't know, but we're going to try. Right now, we are reading spy novels. This one is Moonraker by Ian Fleming. We also have a huge announcement. We just launched a brand new Patreon. Subscribing gives you access to our post-episode episode where we go off record. We put our hair down. We tell you what we really think about these books. Check the link in the description or search it on Patreon. I'm Zach. I am really interested in how Ian Fleming has these like insane Walt Whitman poetics where he just stacks description and description and description on top of each other to create this world of superabundance. I'm Bob. I'm interested in pure evil. Wow, how Ian Fleming really gets into pure evil after book one. And how does he do it? How does Bond save the world? I'm John, and I'm interested in how being Bond doesn't seem nearly as fun when you read about it as when you are watching in the movies. You know, that's a really interesting point because somehow Bond to me seems more fun in books than in the movies. What being Bond sounds more Yeah. Or reading about Bond. Being Bond. Well, maybe, maybe both. Maybe both. I have never in my life watched a James Bond film and said to myself, you know what? Like, I am identifying with the man on screen. I see myself in this scene. But like, when I'm in this James Bond book, there are these moments that are so like weirdly specific and personal that I find them to be, you kind of get lost into like, could this be me? You know, I'm going to give you guys a good example of when he starts talking about smoked salmon. It'll just take me a second. Right, so I, I found the book. You want me to read it? So he talks about he's, he's got a mania for really good smoked salmon. This is when he's in Blades, sort of the coolest card playing establishment in London. Yeah, so there's this moment where they're at this this card playing club and they offer Bond a menu, and Bond says, "Oh, I've got a mania for smoked salmon." And we get this moment, and it's very it's very intimate because it's just talking about him preparing smoked salmon on bread to eat, and he says. Bond helped himself to another slice of smoked salmon from the silver dish beside him. It had the delicate, glutinous texture only achieved by Highland cures, very different from the desiccated products of Scandinavia. Now, I eat smoked salmon every morning. I love this stuff. Never in my life have I considered the difference between the Highland curers of smoked salmon versus Scandinavian smoked salmon, much less much less dismissing Scandinavian smoked salmon as desiccated. But yeah, yeah. These, these moments it, it, make it, me just be like, what a character. Who is mm-hmm. this man? Yeah. It does feel like reading uh, an issue of like, was it monocolism, you know, the sort of the mm-hmm. high, high living magazine. 
a lot of the time when you're reading these books. And, you know, it's very similar to the sort of Brett Ethan Ellis style of like just naming brands the whole time. Like he doesn't take pictures with a camera, he takes pictures with a Leica. Every single thing is branded. Very, very consumeristic in that sense. Even even the faces of the characters in here. I don't know if you notice this, but yeah. twice in the book, he describes people as looking just like different Hollywood movie stars. I, well, I noticed that as well. I noticed that as well. I thought it was very interesting. Yeah. Because you think about all the books and the movie, but you know the, the movie is coming out. We know what first movie is 1962, and they were still writing Bond books at that time, I believe. <laughs> so there's a sort of a weird crossover between the, the books and the films here already. He says Krebs, I think it is, looks just like uh, Peter Laurie. Yeah, yeah. Is the one I remember. Yeah. Which is that fine, great. Don't tell me no more. Like, that's all I need to know. <laughs> really, that's Krebs' whole character right there. Every single action of Krebs from there on is perfectly intelligible. Okay. So, just, you know, l- lazy writing, arguably. Is it going to be useful for many people much longer? Probably not. But Well, I'm one of those people. I didn't recognize a single Hollywood actor who they named, and I actually made the decision not to look any of them up. Just, just for the experience of you know going in as a Peter Laurie's the uh, the little guy, and he's in a few movies. He shares a couple moments of movies. Yeah, Humphrey Bogart. He's got the big soft eyes, like bubble eyes, really short. Oh, I know who you're talking about. I think he's in Casablanca. I mean, but that that's the Krebs I imagined, anyways. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Krebs is a villain who Bond doesn't kill. He's a villain who he he kicks him in the butt. <laughs> You know what I mean? And he scampers down the hallway. I Okay, so James Bond and, and his lifestyle and whether or not he's just a picky guy or if he's living this life of luxury. I think in the movies it's very appealing because you just see it and it looks so glamorous. Reading about it, it is like reading Monocle. In the movie, you just see the, you know, the night yeah. out, right? You just see the sort of the drinking, the gambling, the big win. Great. But in this, you also see the hangover. I think that's the difference between this and the books, the uh, the movies. I think you never see a hangover in the yeah. movies, whereas you always see the hangover here. Yeah, right. Like it's you know his great night, success of Blades. Like to get into a little bit of the plot, there's this guy Hugo Drax, sort of a you know 1960s Elon Musk of a type, and he's he's heralded by the newspapers, by the British public, by the Prime Minister as as some kind of like savior, some kind of hero. He's knighted by the Queen, and he's building this big bond, essentially, Moonraker. You know, he's worshipped as a hero by everybody. And M comes to James Bond, and he says, James calls him by his first name, Bonsara, what's going on here? He says, this guy Hugo Drax, he's great, everyone loves him. So yeah, what's, what, what's the issue? He cheats at cards. Yeah. So, sure enough, Bond is the man for the job, the best card player in the service. They point through all sorts of training to become an excellent card player. So you've got to remember all that stuff. And just to sort of like a personal favor to, to M in a way, he goes out and tries to catch Drax in the act of cheating and to teach him a lesson, you know, to let him know that he's been found out without causing too much of a publicity scene. Because it seems like in this day and age, or in the very least in this book, if you, you found out to be a cheat at cards, it's worse than, you know, worse for your brother representation than being a pedophile is today. So. Apparently that would be it for him. He'd be ruined. Knighthood or not, you can't cheat some cards. Bad manners, not gentleman conduct. And so he has to go and play cards. And he goes, play cards, has a big win, of course, gets James Bond. But then the next morning, he has to get to work for 10 o'clock as usual time, having had a sleeping pill. And he's feeling the come down after taking some Benzedrine to help him to actually win this card game. He's drunk or still very much hungover. 
And he's got to make it into work where he's essentially making, when he's not on these official jobs, a, you know, a basic civil servant salary. You know, he's not making a lot of money in this, his bond. And he's gambled about five times, about three times the amount he's got for his yearly, you know, allowance the previous night. So he's nearly risked all of his life, essentially all of his life on this well, card game. And, you know, the, the personal stakes are so much higher. When Bond plays cards in movies, there's no, you don't get the sense there's any real consequence. Whereas here, if he loses, he's, you know, he's going to be in big trouble financially. Then, even after his big win, he, he doesn't really fully enjoy it. He's still hungover. He's still got to go to his job. And, you know, as he says at this point, and also at the end of the book, the thing where it is like, you know, there's a pleasure in winning, but there's a much greater displeasure yeah, in losing. Yeah, if you lose, yeah. And, you know, it seems like for all the wins that Bond has, the lows are somewhat lower yeah. than the highs. So I think, I don't know, I just, I just feel like these are all aspects of Bond that we don't get in the movies that really, you know, sh- and we do get to see in the books. So as much as, you know, he's, he's this fine salmon and, you know, wins at cards, just like he does in the movies, here we sort of see the after effect of it as well. And we see the, the consequence of that behavior. And we see his general sort of like dissatisfaction with his life, his, you know, awareness that he's going to be dead by 45. Like, he, you know, he's, he was, he'll retire at 45, he'll sort of like kicking off serves and give him another job, but he didn't expect to live that long anyway. So I don't know. I just, I feel like this is sort of a, and, a whole dimension of the character we don't tend to get in the movies, even the Daniel Craig movies. Although I think them so more, <laughs> them more so than in <laughs> this one. Yeah. So yeah, I guess, I guess that's my reflection on my first reflection on Bond. And I think about him in, when reading about him as opposed to when, when <laughs> viewing him. Very different in some ways with the George Smiley book we read last time with uh, Lemus. Very different from Lemus in the last book we read. Yeah, Alec Lemus. Alec Lemus. We can see both of their boring lives in both of these books. But in the Ian Fleming one, it's just referenced as something that happened in the past. Whereas with Alec Lemus, we get to see a lot of his working as a civil servant and just doing the paperwork. Because in this, Bond is reflecting on, oh, thank God, a new mission has started. But for the last year or so, he's only been doing this boring paperwork. And Ian Fleming tells us that the narrator tells us that, that like, there are only so many missions that really take someone of Bond's caliber. And otherwise, he is just a civil servant. He just gets one thing a year. And every time that happens, he probably yeah. will die. And that's the thing, like, and, you know, as much as we revere the Bond lifestyle, you know, James Bond does not live the Bond Most lifestyle. Most of the time. Yeah. You know, 365 days a year, as you're saying. Yeah. Like, he's, when he's on a job, it's when he's most him. That's when he gets to spend as much as he likes. But in his daily life, he's he's making, you know, as much as the average civil servant street, you know, he's he's he's, he's not making that much money. So I think that's what I'm, that's what I mean. Like, the movies, we never see this other Bond. I mean, the books, we never see him. His presence is very much suggested. It's very implicit in his actions. He's very aware of it in a way that we don't we don't get that in a monologue in the mm. in the movies. I think it's actually important for the character of James Bond to have this this dichotomy between Bond on the job versus Bond off the job as a kind of like like Fleming's kind of masculine ideal idealization. Mm. Not idealization, we'll say ideal masculinization of the character of James mm. Bond. If he lived 24 7 365 as this kind of larger than life tuxedo and bow tie wearing figure there's a sense in which he would be a character of almost gluttony and lack of restraint bond needs to have this kind of contrast between bond on the job versus bond at home getting a civil civil servant's pay check in order to show that you know he he can take care of himself yeah when presented with limits he can choose to stay within those limits. He's a person of restraint, 
maybe even humility. You know, he doesn't need to drive. Well, he kind of does need to drive a really nice car, but you, you know what I'm saying. But that's his gift at the end of his job. You know, he gets nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. After winning $500,000, I see that his, his gambling adjusted. After risking his entire life, say the life he yeah. in London, he gets a nice car. And he's there. different from yeah. like when we, we read Mike Hammer, who I love, the Mickey Spillane character, who is kind of gluttonous in the way that he is always balls to the wall, like drinking, smoking all the time. Bond actually says no to alcohol a few times throughout these books that we've read, where he chooses, no, I am not interested in drinking right now, or I will deliberately get drunk for the purpose of this one mission tonight. That's also different from Alec Lemus, who has to convince people that he is an alcoholic for like six months. So Bond gets to go through these like little gluttonous experiences selectively, and he it's all about self-control. Well, also, a moment that you wouldn't see in the films <laughs> is Bond drinking champagne and then mixing in some benzene, which I, I, I don't know this particular substance, but I'm told that it is like the 1950s version of chopping up an Adderall. And yeah. It's an yeah. amphetamine. So, so like, yeah. So, so he's not, like, you get the sense that he could order these super fun drugs anytime he wants oh. and take it really to the next level but he only does it when duty calls. yes when duty calls you know what i mean yeah well moving to ian fleming for a second and back to bond but the idea of these drugs i think is an example of how tight these books are i always forget how good the writing in these books are and like how well ian fleming has thought everything out because bond is taking the benzedrine to get through that mission but the whole workforce under Drax are all on something similar called Philippon. It's just meth, basically. It's the, it is the original meth, actually. It's the original recipe for methamphetamines. And they are all on it. And while Bond is coming down off this Benjadrine, they're giving him these classified documents that are research papers on Philippon. So he's he's getting all of these, reading all of these things about Philippon and then discovers later why he's reading about them later. This was a big question for me because they introduced, they set up the domino of Philippon, but I never, I somehow missed the payoff. Oh, like this is what the henchmen are on. Yeah. Because he starts describing Hugh, Hugo Drax as paranoid yeah. and quick to anger. And I'm like, Oh, obviously Hugo Drax is going to be addicted to Philippon. That's yeah. that's where this is going. But I never, I somehow missed the payoff of that. Um, yeah, I, that is awesome. All of the workers with the Hitler mustaches. We got to talk about them because they're well, they all the, have Hitler mustaches. They all have different mustaches. I know, but... I know, but it's it's all really <laughs> feeling like Hitler mustache. The uh, the workforce, which is all shaved bald. They all wear like identical radioactive suits, basically, to protect their whole bodies. But they're all identified with their mustaches. They are like... And bald heads. And bald heads. Yeah. So yes, they, they're all on something that is... It's the original recipe for methamphetamines. And it's what Hitler's SS started taking eventually. It's developed in Japan and is used as like... First to get people to love work. It means love work. Philippon means love work. And it's to get people in the factory industry to co constantly work so they don't stop. But then it becomes a crime street drug in Japan. And then it becomes like the Hitler choice for getting the military to keep working. And now Drax is using it on his workforce so they can make this missile. So I didn't realize this was a real thing. And now I'm on the yep. Wikipedia page. In Japan, the drug was used as a workforce pill. Yeah. And it later became a crime pill. In the United States, I um, pill. It, was a, it was an obesity treatment as a way to curb the appetite. Yep. A lot in the 1970s, unfortunately. The good times don't last 
this is how we get methamphetamine stick because he was the first one to synthesize it in this way. Oh, so this is literally what Adolf Hitler was addicted to. Yeah. 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 So that's Love why it. it's such a good choice for these Nazis. Yeah. So I, I read this twice. I had a long drive, so I knocked out the audiobook and then I, you know, went home a few days later and like actually sat down and listened and read and took my notes. But I got to say, the second time through, you talked about how good of a writer Ian Fleming is. Yeah. I love Ian Fleming's writing. It's great. Like, all of the like foreshadowing that you would expect of like a mystery novel or a thriller novel are there. Yep. But it's funny to me how much of it is there in kind of like a winking way. <laughs> like the the denouement at the very end, like, oh, I was in the forest and I blew this thing up. It's funny how when they're giving the oh sorry, so so the denouement of how Hugo Drax was a German soldier who was blowing up a a British base but then was mistaken for a British soldier and then integrated in British society. That's yeah. that's the ending with of the story. With memory loss. Yes. Yeah. At the very beginning, yeah, with memory loss. At the very beginning, they're like, who is this Hugo Drax? And they tell the same story, but it's just like, it's the exact same. It's funny how you get the exact same denouement, yeah. just like from the perspective of the British. Of, oh, we just found this guy and he couldn't figure yep. out who he was. Uh, other ones include like, the character introduction of the Bond girl of the story as like, but as like, oh, she's at first Hugo Drax was interested in her, but she batted him away by telling him a story of how she's engaged. And it's presented like, oh, it's just a story by her yeah. virtue of character. And then it turns yeah, out yeah, very yeah. like, oh, no, she is engaged. She's going to marry that man tomorrow. Now, that was a good and joke they, at the end. That was a good joke yeah, at the end. Yeah. Bond was also I mean, like, yeah. you know, these girls are always engaged. And- yeah. I just I just love how each step of the way is adequately set right. up, even if you don't realize it. And then the final one I'll point to is these henchmen. Like, you know, we're oh. looking at them and we're we're aware that it's a kind of the, these these head shaven mustachioed henchmen. We're aware that they kind of come from Germany, you know, and kind of like a post Nazi kind of brain, you know, sweep them up and have them build rockets for us kind of a thing. But it's not clear that they're evil, but then we get this moment where Hugo Drax is introducing his head guy, and he's like, "Oh, this is my chief scientist, Warner," and yeah. it's set. And Warner says, "Quote with angry eyes, it's pronounced Vanner," and I'm just like, "Oh yeah, this is classic villain." <laughs> classic villain. <laughs> Anyone who's pronouncing it Vanner, who's insisting on the pronunciation of of Vanner, you know, like. With yeah. angry eyes. With angry eyes. It's just, it's so good. Mm. So good. I think also the uniformity of those soldiers, like 50 men plus Drax and Galabrand, uh, a pack of cards as yeah. Bond quips, all look identical. Like none of them wearing glasses, all of them bald, all of them have mustaches. And Bond's like, why don't you just, um, you know, why don't you just sort of, like individual number name tags or different colors on them? He's like, how do you decide on mustaches? And, yeah. stuff. and that's the end of the chapter too yeah <laughs> scene close yeah. <laughs> I like mustaches <laughs> it's always very funny too this book I think maybe is well the last book is very funny too where it's there's lots of jokes about Americans bad fashion but this book yeah. is hilarious with just like are these guys Nazis oh yeah they're definitely Nazis <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> but there's we've seen Fleming do this a couple times. He does it in Casino Royale as the countdown. Fleming is not just good at putting a plot together, but also good with artistic relation or the, the the relationship between sentences and the layout of his sentences is very artistic. And what he does, Casino Royale is give us a countdown until Bond has to play the right card, but there's a gun at his back and there's things that are rising, making the suspense get more and more and more intense. And we have a parallel countdown in this book, too, where we have cards again, actually, at the beginning, and we have a rocket going to be launched at the end. And this one, at the very beginning, we have all of these moments of Bond dragging out the suspense so he can just kill Drax and take just break his heart. He's going to take away half a million dollars from Drax and teach him a lesson. Bond is delaying it, delaying it, delaying it. And we get the experience of a countdown until Bond finally puts down cards. And it's very satisfying. We have a countdown when they launch the missile as well. And it's structured in a similar way where we get a kind of uh, different elements to this countdown to ratchet up the tension. So I love that he's done lots of these ring structures throughout his book. We're also told that the missile is going to launch on Friday. And then the chapter headings for each part of the book are Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yeah. The zero hour, zero minus, zero. I wonder, I mean, I know Ian Fleming wrote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which is really funny to me, (laughs) but I I do wonder how many other books he wrote. I mean, I guess I have Wikipedia open right now from looking at this drug, but yeah, he's he's the kind of author who, you know, I could see myself retiring and well, having a nice bookshelf just filled with the complete Ian Fleming that I pull off the shelf and read on a lazy afternoon. Looking now, it's mostly Bond. Then there's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, Thrilling Cities, Diamond Smugglers. But he like there's some other authors where you can tell they kind of phoned it in. But clearly for these first three books he's putting a ton of energy into these james bond novels he's taking it very seriously he's not just trying to make money i mean i think he keeps going i read that john f kennedy so i read that ian fleming's big break was john f kennedy saying that from russia with love was one of his favorite books of all time wow and that's two books away from now so he's still he's still cooking at this you know for the next couple of months damn apparently yeah liam fleming got a lot of critiques for this book for not having enough of a foreign theme to it. Actually, we never leave the UK on this one. Oh. Many of the most British of Bond novels, you know, we don't get to go and travel any fancy places. And, you know, I think it it seems like a deliberate decision here, like, you know, they make a big deal that the books about how a secret service don't work on soil. On this one occasion, Bond is the only man for the job. Kind of interesting. Well, it is is kind of an infiltration story. You have, you you, the bad guy is here on the shores. I, I do think yeah. that this does have a key feature of espionage novels, though, that maybe has been only hinted at in previous ones, which is the disguise. Now, Bond in the previous one does go under disguise as a gaudy American, which I, you know, fantastic scene. Yeah. But it's interesting to see his kind of like secret agent superpower or like, you know, how Sherlock Holmes has an encyclopedic knowledge of crime and he uses that, you know, deduction, et cetera. Every 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 detective has their own shtick. And there was one here that was kind of hinted at that I thought was really interesting. And we see this when he's talking about Hugo Drax. Very start of the book. They're listing all of the ways that Hugo Drax is is just, you know, a pen on the lapel of high society. He's, you know, he's a philanthropist. He's a 
gonna he's been knighted he you know he has this he's a war hero you he's know self-made man self-made right. man beat the odds with investing but he cheats at cards and it got me thinking that that ability to size up someone's character and find the one incongruous character trait and be like that tells me that this is a person with a disguise on mm-hmm. that's that's kind of that that's a key bond superpower mm-hmm. you know what is i that, mean is it bond just that though i thought it was m that or like in, isn't it the casino the not casino but the the card club manager who figures this out and then passes it on to m and right. m thinks bonds the man to, to help yeah. us figure this out because you know we paid him all this money to have these like card training he's going to use them and which is kind of funny but yeah I think, yeah you know you're right you're i think right. I, I would i think that's more like symptomatic of this sort of cultural attitude in a way that cheating at cards is like the worst thing you could possibly do because you know i don't know not necessarily as the general public but you know if you look at the membership of you know this card club it's full of mps full of all the people you you know you want in your pocket who, if you're going to be the, the the man, the sort of the 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 drafts wrath on speak, this man of high size, this man that the whole country looks up to and relies on, so that he can then destroy them. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So he needs them in his pocket. But cheating at cards is is very risky and it's sort of peculiar behavior. But why are you cheating at cards? You're winning at life, essentially. Is what he's saying, you know, you've got all, you, you're richer than anyone at this club. Why do you need to cheat? And I think that do we get a conclusive answer to that? That like why does draft need to cheat? Is it just that he needs some relaxation for his permanent anxiety, you know, because he's, you know, get, doing such a high pressured thing. You know, he's always sweating. He's always, seems nervous. Oh, he's, yeah. As you said, probably on yeah. drugs, always smoking cigarettes. Like, he, you know, he's got real drug addict, you know, energy to him. But what what does Bond come to? Because, like, why he's cheating at cards? Like, what's I really love this. I want to talk more about the character and what he looks like and how he becomes a classic Bond villain and how we perceive the classic Bond villain. But, the idea of this character, whether or not he is a good person, I think is a very sophisticated part of this book. In the last book, when we kind of see through a villain who is apparently doing something good, or I mean, as soon as we know a villain is a villain in the old books, we're certain. But Bond, and this one goes back and forth, because when M asks him, what is your opinion about Drax? Bond goes on for a long time saying, you know, I believe in him. Yes, what he's doing is unusual why is he spending so much money on england why is he doing all of these nice things but i believe in him that's bond's conclusion and then m says yes i agree but he cheats at cards later bond sees that he cheats at cards like oh he's just a tiny man who's made a lot of money and he's just a big liar then he changes his mind again because he goes and he goes undercover kind of to go and watch drax's missile and he starts to believe in him again and he says oh he's just a guy who spends so much of his energy keeping England safe. So what if he cheats at cards? He needs to blow off some steam. Bond concludes that, and he says, okay, that's fine. Then he chastises himself later, because he's like, I knew someone who cheats at cards, someone who's doing all of these strange things, I knew something was up. Why did I believe in him? How could I have been so blind? And then he again sees that this Drax is a bad dude. He's going to try and destroy London. Then at the end, Drax tells him why he cheats at cards. And it's because of his prejudice against people from England. You know, as a German who was raised in England, gets bullied all the time for being German right after World War II. He cheats at cards so he can rub it in the faces of the English and say, oh, I can cheat even at the most elite card table 
and you can't even figure it out. So that's why he does it. Yeah. But I love that the Bond has his doubts of believing this man or not. And I think that explanation really like makes sense as well, because I think, yeah. you know, I think it's specifically like British prejudice almost. Like, you know, nobody likes card cheat, but this idea that it's yeah. this reputation ruining thing. See, you know, the fact that he cheats on cards really sort of like conflicts with his, you know, identity as like a British gentleman, you know, a, a knight of the realm, a sir. Like, servants don't cheat at cards. I think that sort of marks him out as this sort of foreign presence. And it's like, why is he best in England if he's this foreign? Yes. Um, in mannerisms. It's just an unrichest thing to do. Honestly, to become, you know, a gentleman to do this. Because like any, any other thing in the world would be worse, better than cheating at cards for his yeah. public reputation. And he's the darling of London right now. Yeah. And it's like something awful is going on and we can't put our finger on it. If he's doing this, we know it's bad. But we just can't tell why yet. I mean, in terms of what he's doing, like, you know, his main thing is, is building this bomb Moonbreaker, you know, and the big yeah. evil plot is that he he says he's going to do, an, you know, a test of this on, you know, into the sea. But <laughs> actually, he's going to drop it on London and kill millions of people. But I think it's interesting that what the attitude is to this bomb. And I guess I'm thinking about this just because I've like, just seen Oppenheimer this week and weirdly enough, you know, we, we've timed this perfectly to, to get this sort of Oppenheimer-esque, like Atom Bomb type story, you know, more or less fitting with the release date of Oppenheimer. I think like, it's very interesting how like in favour of this bond public opinion seems to be. It just okay. seems to be this unambiguous and great thing that he's doing, that even Bond, even, you know, everyone, the Queen's going to be night or just building this bomb. I thought it was interesting. Well, in favour of the bomb, but also I was personally surprised by how unsure everyone was on whether the rocket itself could fly. Yeah. They're all like, oh, well, maybe the fins will fall off. Maybe, you know, the the rocket will burn through the, you know, the casing. We need a special alloy. And I was like, guys, it's a rocket. But then I then I realized that this came out about 10 years before the moon landing. So, like, rockets are not a tried and true science at this point. This is early, the early days of rockets. And it, it to me, it kind of speaks to the fears of these things, fears of large intercontinental weapons systems delivered by rockets more than it speaks to the fear of the atom bomb. No one's concerned yeah. about the atom bomb. In fact, when the bomb goes off in the water, there's a big mushroom cloud, M says to James Bond, well, and you're probably you know wondering about the fallout, the nuclear fallout. He says, well, don't worry. There is a big northerly wind. I guess you could say return to the fatherland. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, so funny. "My dude, fuck <laughs> oh, That's why. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, it's kind of crazy. I mean, well, I think the yeah. bomb just like, yeah. I think the anxiety that seems to be reflected in this bomb. Well, first is that it's going to go wrong, then actually backfire. Mm-hmm. Um, and secondly, that you know, it, it's going to be used against us somehow by the Russians and the Germans. Yeah, yeah. All right, guys, we are running out of time for this episode, so. We're going to have to sign off now, but please, if you're listening and you want to hear more, check out our bonus episode that is available on our Patreon, where we go even deeper in this book. Talk to you later, Bob and John. Talk to you later, John and Zach. Talk to you later, Zach and Bob. <laughs>